Grace and Peace, the Blueprint Church. <clears throat> to those who lead, to those who serve, to we who are gathered. Is anyone in here that's a visitor? Welcome. This is what we do. We, we come together and we make much of the God who makes ways out of no ways. Uh, the one who, by his own mercy and grace, condescended and he put himself on a cross and he put himself in a tomb and then he got up and put himself back on the throne and so as we dive into prayer we pray that you will encounter this Christ and get to know him Heavenly Father we bless your name we come before you recognizing that it is by your goodness and mercy that we've seen this day the alarm clock didn't wake us up as the preacher said there are many people whose alarm clocks went off and their bodies remained flat <clears throat> ours got up because the breath of God is in us until it's not <laughs> and according to the Lord Jesus the second birth the new birth those that are born again not only when they die, immediately realize that they didn't die, but they live. But we are alive to a God, and the Bible calls that being alive to righteousness. But if we die without being reborn, we wake up to judgment. Help us, Father, to grapple and grasp and appreciate the truth of the gospel from pulpit to pew. Do it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus, amen. There are many things that turn people off about church. <clears throat> We're in a somewhat anti-church climate today. Both Christians and churchgoers are very disparaging about the church. For some people, it's our manner. It's the way we do things. Now and then someone will say, I like Jesus and I like Christianity. I just don't like the way people do things in church, our manner. For some, it's our mindset. They don't like the way the believer thinks, uh, especially the way we think about culture, the way we think about maybe sexuality, the way we think about roles, the way we think about rules, the way we think about scripture. For some, they don't like our Messiah. The Lord Jesus says, if they hated you, don't just know they hated me first. Uh, and the world will hate you because it hated me. Some people, Jesus took that his own brothers when he was on earth. He said, the world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. In other words, some people don't like our manner. Some people don't like our mindset. Some people don't like the church's Messiah. And others, they don't like the church's message. What we've been sent to say. And of all the messages that we've been sent to say, there's probably one that is out of favor more than any other. You could say it's be holy, for I am holy. The other one could be don't love the world. But perhaps the one they can't stand the most is this small word called repent. The old school preachers used to be maybe too cocky, maybe a little calloused as they went out and they sort of captured a cliche. 
turn or burn. Well, I won't go there this morning, but I'll say something very similar, but I'll let the text put a more biblical gloss on it. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Don't leave out, please. <laughs> let the text help you to appreciate the both beauty and the grace of this passage. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 13, 1 to 9. We've already read it, so let's work through it. Because this message today is very simple, even though it is very sobering. It's very clear, but it's also very convicting. There's no ambiguity this morning. So let's look at it. We're going to see that God demands repentance. God gives grace as a means of repentance. And there is a gospel limitation on repentance. First of all, repentance is a necessity that God demands. Verses 1 to 5 says this. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The text introduces us to two Palestinian tragedies that were so known that somebody brought the news to Jesus and asked his take on the matter. It was about, the first one was about some Galileans who apparently during Passover went to the temple and at the moment that they were involved in sort of overseeing their sacrifices, and the reason why we say that is because laity never got involved in their own sacrifices except during Passover. So the fact that they were making sacrifice was probably in Jerusalem at the temple during Passover. And at that time, Pilate, who was a Roman ruler, comes and he executes them so that the blood of the people and the blood of their sacrifices mingled. Now, we don't know that if this was because they deserved it. We don't know if this was something political. We don't know if this is something principled. This is what we know. We know that this was something they personally suffered. And so the group think at the time was all personal suffering was directly connected to personal sinfulness. You see this in John chapter 9 when a man is born blind and the disciples say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus has to correct them and say, neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not what you see here. If you go to the Old Testament, one of the most classic works on suffering is a book known as Job. Job chapter 4, one of Job's friends saw his suffering, and he says this in Job 4, starting with 7. He says, obviously you're being repaid for your sins. Who that was innocent ever perished? In verse 8, he says, As I've seen, those who plow iniquity, sow trouble, and sow trouble reap the same. 
By the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. He basically says the only reason why you're going through something like this is because you got something in your life that warrants it. So this was the group thought of the time. And Jesus loves to introduce his own theology in the midst of our group thought to correct us. Jesus maximizes this moment and he says, yes, sin and suffering are connected doctrines. He doesn't deny that sin and suffering go together in our theology. However, suffering is not a means of trying to, to, to determine whether or not the suffering is directly caused by the sinner or their sin or whether suffering is a means of determining the degree of their sin. Jesus says, let me just take you off of trying to figure out what you're trying to figure out and let me introduce you to the universality of sin and the uniform need for repentance. Jesus does something great here. He cuts through our divisiveness and unifies us at the point, regardless of who sins a lot or who sins a little, all have sinned and all need repentance. He turns the table from what about them to what about us? He shifts the what about your sin and makes you have to come to grips with what about my sin? He says sin is universal and the need to repent is universal. It's what God demands. Now, you know this because chapter 12 sort of puts your eye on this notion of judgment and justice Judgment is coming and repentance is necessary. I'm going to read you a couple of verses just to give you this so you can get the appreciation for why 13, 1 to 9 is the climax talking about the remedy for something he's been dealing with for one whole chapter. In Luke chapter 12, the immediately preceding chapter, 4 to 5, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, yes, there is a judgment. It's not always immediate, but there is one that will be ultimate. And you ought to fear the one who can give you something in this life, but also meet you when you wake up in the life to come. Judgment. Judgment is unexpected. Later on in 1235 to 37, he says, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What he says is judgment will be unexpected. So don't try to get ready. Be ready. 12, 39 to 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All this precedes you must repent. All of this is news to let you know, Jesus says, there is something that is coming. It is a calamity that is coming. There is a disaster you can bank on. When he gets to 13.1, he says, and repentance is your only remedy. Judgment, 
this judgment, perhaps you don't like the word judgment. Well, judgment is really just an outgrowth of justice. We like justice today. Luke 2, 12, 49 to 50. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. We're not used to Jesus talking gangster, but every now and then Jesus gets gangster. I came to bring a fire and I wish it was already lit. <laughs> judgment is looming. 12, 54 to 59. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? How come you're good at saying, oh, I better tie my hair up before I mess up this do? How is it that you know how to, oh, I better put my car under the overhang because I, I don't want the rain to spot it up. How is it that you can know I better take my suede's off because it's going to rain today? How is it that you can interpret that there's bad weather or good weather coming, but you can't interpret that there is justice that is ultimately coming? And it's universal. No one will escape it. 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is what Jesus has been saying. He's been talking about a judgment that is coming, a justice you can expect, something that will have all of us there at the same time, the good, the bad, the ugly, the tall, the light, the white, the black. Everybody will come to a moment where they will have to pay the last penny or have some other means of hope. So when 13 comes, it says, so at that time, people asked about these Galileans. You see the connection between 12 and 13? Well, repentance, Jesus says, it's something that is demanded because it is justice's only remedy. So they asked, they said, well, the people who experienced all that stuff, like when Pilate executed them, he says, you think that there were sinners? Verse three, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Jesus switches from the political, maybe something where they were culpable. He says, let's go to the accidental or just the providential. Jesus jumps in. Oh, how about the 18? You know, y'all bringing me current events. How about the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? You think they were worse offenders? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. Isn't this what we like to do? We like to try to figure out who's a worse sinner. We like to figure out whose life is worse. And if your life is worse than mine, it must be because I'm better than you. We're experts in other people's wrongs. And we catch amnesia when it comes to our own. One writer said, we speak a thousand words against a thousand sins of others before we put to death one sin of our own. 
He says, you ought to think about you as the worst sinner you know. You ought to think about you as the worst debtor you know. And here's your only hope. You must repent. The word repent, metanoia in the Greek, captures the idea of changing your mind so that it changes your actions. Changing your mind so that it changes your actions. Here's another one. It's a U-turn, an about face from going back to God from any idol, whether the idol is yourself, whether the idol is your job, whether the idol is bad doctrine, whether the idol is culture, whether the idol is the world and all of its trinkets, it's turning from that back to God. You must repent. You must turn. You must leave what you were doing. You must leave where you were going and come back to God or you too will perish. See, Christians are not people who tout that we are not sinners. Christians are people who insist that we are sinners, but we are sinners who are repenters. This word repent, though it's fallen out of favor today. When's the last time you heard anybody tell somebody repent? It's not just bring Jesus along. We don't just want them to include God on the road they already were traveling. We want them to U-turn from the road they were traveling and come to Jesus. The problem I always had with Jesus' walks is he looked like he was on the way to where he already was on the way to. Sorry, mama. I got packs to move. I'm hoping Jesus walks. The Bible would say that the world is on a conveyor belt. It's on those airport uh, moving streets that's taking them in the wrong direction. And you must get off and you must say, oh, Jesus is that way. Nobody is born on the road toward God. Everyone is born on a road away from God. And when we get off the road, we usually get off the road and get on the wrong conveyor belt. If you don't take one step toward hell, the Bible says the street you're on goes there anyway. And so when people showed up in the Bible with a sermon, as unpopular as it may have been, even as I feel the pressure even now, it's unpopular. They said repent. It's the, what we call the first word of the gospel. John the Baptist, he came after 400 silent years. And when God decided to break his silence, stop giving Israel the silent treatment, he sent a man, and this was the man's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in your grill. The Lord Jesus picked up on John's message. His first message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is in your grill. First, Jesus' first sermon. Peter, his first sermon post-resurrection was, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, because you killed Jesus. Repent for killing Jesus and come and be included in Jesus. Turn around. And get back on the Jesus train. It was the first message that he said when he did the first post-resurrection miracle at the gate beautiful in Acts 3. He says, don't look at us like it's us. It's Jesus. Repent and get on board with the Lord Jesus. The first martyr who died, Stephen, in Acts 7, 
His message was basically, you keep dissing God. Repent. In other words, unless you repent, you likewise will meet justice. And when you meet judgment and justice, having never repented, you will see every last penny must be paid. And this is why we come to the Lord Jesus, because Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to him we owe. And so what does repentance look like? Let me give you a picture of repentance. It looks like what the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 was, was, was described. It says this, turn and do the things you used to do. Some of us need to turn to Christ for the first time. Others of us need to turn back to Christ because we always keep veering off the road. So this demand can feel heavy. It is a demand. So I got good news for you. If you feel the weight of the demand of repentance, repentance is a grace that God must grant. Six to eight. So then he told them this parable. Verse six. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure or fertilizer. The text gives you a parable, a teaching to make the point that he's just been making and then to add a point he has not made. The point is that God will deal with that which does not produce what he's after. But he's also merciful and gracious in doing what it takes to cultivate in you what he requires from you. It's all about a parable. There was a man who had a fig tree in a vineyard and he came seeking fruit. Why do you plant a fruit tree? Because you want fruit. There was no fruit. Fruit is life on display. If it's an apple tree, the Bible says if it's an apple tree, that means that tree has apple life. And the way you know it has apple life is that it produces apples. If it is a grapevine, the way you know it is a grapevine is it produces grapes. You don't plant a grapevine to not get grapes. You don't plant an apple tree to not have apples. It's the evidence of the fact of life and it is a indicator of the kind of life. So when God comes and he says, I will put my people in the right climate and I will give them the right timing so that they will produce the kind of life, a Christ-like life, a God-centered life, a gospel life, a just life, a forgiving life, a gracious life, a merciful life. But if I come and that's not what I find, what should I do? The parable says, get rid of it. It's good for nothing. I went to, when I went to Philadelphia, I got this house right on the block, crusty. I mean, concrete everywhere, one little plot of ground. To my surprise, it was a peach tree sitting on the corner of a crusty Philly block. And it was mine. I was renting, but it was mine. I was like, oh, we got a peach tree. Took them off. We were like, oh, look at these peaches. Never a peach since. I was so mad. Why was I mad? Because it's a peach tree, but there were no peaches. Then we came to North Carolina and we got a muscadine tree. That's like a big grape with a real tough skin around it. If you don't know what muscadines are, they're basically like grapes with real leathery, like skin. 
but they're great. We used to go out there and pluck the muscadines, and then one day somebody came and took the muscadines. We were like, why did you take the muscadines? We were enjoying the fruit. In other words, the whole purpose, the joy of a fruit-bearing tree is the fruit that it bears. The Bible makes clear that he says, let me leave it alone. Let me lavish it with patience and let me lavish it with investment. Fertilizer, verse 8. Let it alone. Let me work on it. Let me cultivate this repentance, because repentance is the theme. The parable is about, let me cultivate the fruit of repentance. We're so quick to cut people off. We're so quick to excommunicate. We're so quick to break up, to divorce, to switch friends, to switch crews, to switch churches. We're quick. It doesn't mean that we're gonna see there comes a time when that's appropriate. But we're quick. And then you ask, well, what have you done? What have you invested in order to make it? It's not just still looking around for the fruit. It's what have you poured onto it to cultivate it? Grace is God's divine patience and God's divine investment to lead us to fruit of repentance. Listen to these verses to hear what God says. God's kindness and patience, Romans 2, 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Even human gentleness and forbearance can cultivate the fruit of somebody doing the right thing when they kept doing the wrong thing. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. The Lord's servant must not be on Twitter beefing, must not be on Instagram tripping, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Even your forbearance and your gentleness does the same work that God's forbearance and God's gentleness does. It provokes in someone. We think we better let them have it. God says, no, patience, gentleness. How about pursuit? Well, when you come, back, when you come to your senses, holler at me. Well, when you're ready to get it right, I'll be here. Well, look at what the Bible says, God's gracious pursuit. Luke 15 Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. What did he do? He left 99 and went after it. How about this? Rejoice with me. I found the coin that I lost. What did he do? He moved the couch and he found it. In other words, neither of these things were able to come back. He had to go after them. And yet he calls that repentance. It's a repentance that comes because of his own pursuit. It's grace that God would come after you. It's grace that God would come after me. It's grace. Some people say, well, when they're repentant, they'll turn around. Yes, but that doesn't always happen just on their own. Even the prodigal son, which is the next story in that Luke 15 cluster, is about a famine that happened that drove him home. It ain't just he came to a census. It's a famine that made him come to a census. It's the grace of a famine. 
The psalmist says it this way. Divine affliction can be the grace that brings you to, com- to, to repentance. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That's what the psalmist said. Divine correction, 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And sometimes we have to jam each other up. And that godly confrontation leads us. We must repent of our godlessness and our fruitlessness. You say, what fruit does he want from us? I just started looking at some of the things that God gave us the spirit, gave us the new life because he wanted something out of the deal. So here's some of the fruit and here's some of the things we should repent. The first thing is repent. If you've never come to Jesus, come to Christ. Come back to him because he made you in his image so you would look like him. The only way you look like him is to be in the behold him. The Bible says behold him. We'll be like saying, I want to look like the sun is out. Okay, well, you have to go into the sun in order to look like your son kissed. The Bible would say, and the Bible says we become like Christ by beholding his glory. We become like him by being in places where Jesus is on display. One of the reasons why we say come to church is because the church is consecrated to putting Jesus on display. One of the reasons why we say put him in your music because when you hear him, you begin to think like him. One of the reasons why we say you should hang with believers. Yes, be evangelistic, but hang with Christians because Christians keep Jesus in your face. And the more you behold him, the more you become like him. So the first thing is turn from Christlessness back to Christocentrism. Turn from worldliness back to Jesusness. That's the first one. But we also need to return from fruitlessness, meaning having the life of Christ, but not producing the things that He gave you the life of Christ first. For how about return and return and repent of weak and unworthy worship? John 4, Jesus tells a woman that the reason why you get the Spirit is because God wants worshipers. It says such worshipers he is seeking. God wants worshipers, not just churchgoers. If you come through these doors, you're in the church. That doesn't mean that you're worshiping. That doesn't mean that your heart is elevated and exalting based on his worthiness. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus curses a fig tree. It says he was hungry and he wanted figs. And it came as an indictment against the temple because he had been to the temple and saw that they had a lot of hustle and a lot of bustle, but it was like leaf with no fruit. In other words, you could do a lot of religious stuff and not produce real worship. How about repent and turn from selfism? Romans 12 says that God gave you the spirit and divine mercies in light of the mercies. It was 11 chapter full of mercies. He says that you would be a living sacrifice, not into yourself, but dead to self and alive to him. How about returning back to thinking about Christ before self, thinking about his church before self, thinking about his mission before self? How about repent and turn back from selfism to living sacrifice. How about returning, repenting from weak or unworthy family life? Malachi chapter 2, God says, I hate divorce and I got a beef with you because you're doing your wife wrong. And he says, what was I after? And Malachi 2.15 says, I hate divorce because 
I wanted godly seed. In other words, God says, I didn't just want a dope husband. I didn't just want a dope wife. I didn't want a dope dad and just want a dope mom. I wanted a dope family. <laughs> he says, in the way you're doing each other is messing up the family. Kids, the Bible would say to you, honor your father and your mother and gives you a promise and says, why? Because even kids that obey their parents and honor their parents is part of what God is after. I want a dope family. How about rep returning, repenting and returning from weak and unworthy praise? Philippians chapter two, the Bible says that he gave us, made us a new race, a new people. Why? And called us out of darkness and freed you from drugs and freed you from lifelessness and freed you from the grave. Why? So that you will proclaim his excellencies. Say, God, loose my tongue. I used to tell people about you. I don't anymore. I used to talk about you around unbelievers. I don't anymore. I used to bring you up in conversations where it's not cool to. Please release me. I want to repent. I want to go back to talking about about you without being solicited unsolicited let my tongue declare your excellencies because that's why he freed you Philippians 2 how about repent and turn from weak and unworthy evangelism in Romans 15 Paul calls it the priestly work of the gospel what is the priestly work of the gospel he says offering the gospel to people so I can offer people to the God of the gospel I give people Jesus that I may give some I give people the <clears throat> gospel of Jesus so that I can give those people to Jesus who gave us the gospel say God I want to return back to giving them Jesus and evangelizing how about repent and turn from weak and unworthy unworthy community church I told you that Ephesians the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2 he says I, I, I see your works you're good I see your belief your own point I mean you're doctrinal yes you look at people who are not apostles you can detect that he says but I have this against you you left your first love he says return and do what you used to do now most preachers preach the first love as their devotion to God but many others and I take this view believe that the first love was communal love because in John's gospel the only way you know you love God is if you love your brother who you see every day. He basically was telling Ephesus, you all like Christianity in principle and doctrine, but you've left the love that shows Christianity in practice. What I'm saying to you is Jesus says, unless you repent, you meet disaster. The way you avoid disaster is you repent. There was a man looking for the fruit of repentance. What does he do? He holds on. He's patient. He cultivates. He exposes you to more grace. He exposes you to, you to more. But then here's my last point. The grace is granted. But repentance is something that in time will be ended. Because he ends like this. <laughs> He says, invest more, forbear more, be kind more, lavish more, pursue more. Verse 9, then if it should bear fruit, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. 
Isaiah 55, 6, 7 says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But there is a limit on it. Psalm 32, 6 says this. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. It's an open door until it's not. Second Peter 3, 9 to 10 says, Lord is, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It's a type of turn or burn. It's a type of repent or perish. I just dropped by to say, clear. The remedy for meeting a day of justice but having no fruit is repentance. The North African Bishop Augustine was a notorious sinner who became a notorious or a famous saint. Before he came to repentance, he's known to have prayed, Lord, because he was a womanizer, Make me chaste, <laughs> pure, <laughs> but not now. <laughs> Later on, he would go on to say this. God has promised forgiveness for your repentance. He has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. Some of us, we assume there will be a tomorrow. When I was a teenager, I left and I started living foul. I said, God, I'll be back when I'm 30. I literally said those words to him. I said, because it doesn't look like it's going to get fun until you're 30. Praise God. He pursued me, cultivated me, and brought me back at 19. But it was after a five-year run of living so contrary to the faith that if you would have seen me, you wouldn't have recognized me. Jesus said this to Israel 40, almost 40 years before Rome came to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In other words, Jesus said, there's going to come a time when your op opportunity to repent will be over. And in 70 AD, it was. The kids in here right now. You've heard it all before. Your heart is hard to it. And sometimes to reject repentance leads us to only get more hard. It doesn't make us softer, it makes us harder. Don't assume you will be able to believe. Sometimes we say, well, as long as they live in this time, not necessarily, because sometimes we're so hardened that the longer we live, the harder we get. Rather than the longer we live, the more opportunity there is for us to hear, which is why the Bible says, in the day you hear of his voice, Harden not your heart. 
Some of you right now need to go home and say, let me repent even now. Let me turn away from where I've been going, turn from what I've been doing, turn from who I've been back to the one who called me and graciously and patiently bids me to come. I end with reminded of Tony Evans. Dr. Tony Evans had a great analogy that I think is fitting for us. He said there was a father who was on a business trip and he had to get to where he had to go. That's where he was going. And as he was on his way to the train station to get to where he had to go because he had to get where he was going, his son was playing in the mud right at the door. And so the father thinking for the sake of time, let me just leap over my son and let me go to where I have to go because I have to get to where I have to go. And he slipped and he fell in the mud. The son is playing in the mud. The father slipped and now he's all in the mud. But the father doesn't do what the son did. The father gets up with the mud because he still has to get where he had to go. He doesn't stay in the mud. He gets up with the mud and he takes the mud to where he had to go because he had to get where he had to go. Some of you, you've tripped, you've slipped, you have the stains to prove it, you have the marks to prove it, but while other people remain in the sin, that remain in the struggle, that remain in the dirt, that remain in the filth, because they're not going anywhere, you have decided you have to get where you have to go. Your father bids you come. He doesn't say get clean and then come to me. He says come to me with your life of cleanliness. He doesn't say get yourself right and then get to me. He says when you get to me, I'll get you right. Today you can repent. I can repent because it's a demand, but it's grace that cultivates it. It's granted, but do not harden your heart because the time for it is limited. But the remedy and the beauty of having repented and been forgiven and been made whole and been clean is eternity. Let us be with our Father. That's where we have to get. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.